Welcome to the Digital Void Salon Series, where we challenge digital structures in physical spaces. This is a place to bring people together to address the mass confusion of the digital media environment, discuss and question the people, power, and politics of its structures, and forge community through live, in-person discussions. We embrace conversations both difficult and necessary, creating a safe space for those who want to challenge themselves and others. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, co-producer of the Digital Void Salon series, and about a year ago, I was beginning research on my master's thesis at Queens College. I was interested in political communication on new media platforms, namely how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Beto O'Rourke were able to launch nationally recognized campaigns, in part because of their use of Instagram Live and Instagram Stories, like Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fireside chats in the 1930s, John F. Kennedy on television in the 1960s, and Barack Obama and Donald Trump on social media more recently, these politicians were able to leverage a new media platform in order to evoke feelings of authenticity and intimacy with their constituents. But why does so much of our public discourse focus on authenticity? And what does it even mean to be authentic? Well, the actual roots of the word are autos, meaning self, and hentes, meaning doer or being. In short, it means to act on one's own authority. But today, the word is everywhere, from advertisements for sneakers produced both domestic and foreign, to food advertisements, and, of course, discussions about political discourse. But it's a glittering generality. A person believing someone or something else to be authentic or inauthentic is totally subjective. Add in digitally mediated technology, its algorithms and practices of captology, forget it, it's nearly impossible to discern what is and is not authentic. So what exactly are we trying to figure out? The gap between receivers and senders, the void that exists between two parties. This void creates unforeseen tensions and vulnerabilities, each of which leaves content producers ahead of the curve and audiences susceptible of what's to come. Historically, we see what's happening is not too different than what has already occurred. In the 1930s, people were deceived by H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds radio broadcast and believed there to be a real alien invasion. In the 1990s, large swaths of the population thought reality television was, well, real. In the lead-up to the 2016 United States presidential election, we learned that national press outlets conducted interviews with influencers on Twitter who were believed to be Americans but were later revealed to be paid foreign operatives working to sow division and disinformation amongst our population. So we humans work to compensate for the void created between receivers and senders. Much in the vein of Douglas Rushkoff's Team Human, we work to make up for the loss of millions of years of biological evolution. What gets lost in mediated communication? Our natural abilities to make eye contact, sense tension, and laugh with each other. In our effort to compensate for what is lost, however, we lose so much of what makes us human, and we have enough of a hard time reaching consensus, even in physical spaces. But the void need not be a place to agonize over. On the contrary, it's a place to embrace. In Buddhism, the void is represented by a symbol called the sunyata. It's the undifferentiation out of which everything arises, where everything simultaneously both is and is not. 
It is the environment of not just the physical, but ultimately the digital. Our physical beings express themselves online and our digital tendencies influence the real world. There is no escaping this digital media environment. So we push back, bridge, challenge, collaborate, discuss, deliberate, educate, inform, illuminate, and work together to find meaning. Today, we look at digital disinformation. What happened in 2016? What's happened since? What's happening now? And what can we do about it? It is my privilege to welcome two of the most uniquely qualified people to the stage to begin our conversation. First, Dr. Jamie Cohen. Dr. Cohen is the founder of the New Media Program at Malloy College. He is a digital media culture expert with a specific focus on YouTube, memes, emergent media, and digital media literacy. Second, Izzy Lepowski. She is a senior reporter at Protocol Media, covering the intersection of technology, politics, and national affairs. She previously was a senior writer at Wired Magazine, where she covered the 2016 election and the Facebook beat in its aftermath. Thank you all for coming. My name is Dr. Jamie Cohen. Thank you so much, Issy, for being part of this event. This is our very first ever Digital Void event. And so our goal is to do really a monthly talk and uh, discussion and salon series where we break down some of the biggest and most confusing things in which we're constantly faced with. And so we have very important guests who are experts in that field, and they're the people who will speak directly to those subjects. So very happy to have you here, Issy. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me. So. First, since this topic is about this year and the discussions of information in general, one of the things I think we're going to try to cover in this session is about what does it mean to even talk about information, disinformation, misinfo, and so forth. So one of my first questions to you is what is disinformation and how does that differ from misinformation and fake news? Yeah, so that's a really good question because I think these terms all get uh, confused and just tossed around um, as if they're synonymous and they're not. Uh, disinformation I would define as information that's spread with the intent to deceive. So this is the kind of thing that we saw during the 2016 election where you had these um, Russian uh, military agents basically spreading information online that was, uh, they were pretending to be people that they were not, they were um, pretending to stand for causes they did not stand for, they were setting up events um, with the explicit intention of picking fights between two sides of the same argument. Um, they were staking out both sides of these fights. Um, so that was, a that was a clear example of disinformation. That is um, somebody coming out with the intent to deceive. Misinformation I would categorize as people getting things wrong, people misinterpreting facts, people turning things into memes that turns out to be untrue, but maybe there's not really an ill intent there. There's just a misunderstanding. There is um, a miseducation, um, something like that. Fake news, what we saw, what we have seen, but it, what we started to see in 2016 uh, were really two different types of fake news. So there were the there was a subset of folks who were just setting up these websites, um, saying that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump or whatever it was, uh, in order to make money. They would you know create a big following on Facebook and then they would direct you to their web page and on that web page they would be selling Google ads and they would be making money from Google ads. So. I was working for Wired at the time. We had a big story about how a lot of these folks were teenagers in Macedonia, literally just trying to make pocket change. 
then there's another subset of fake news that we saw that was coming from again, these disinformation agents. And you know, some of it, fake news can be a little bit of a misnomer because some of it was not explicitly fake. Some of it was very um, you know, cherry-picked real news stories that were just designed to incite people's frustration with the political process or to pick at racial tensions and try to um, depress uh, the, the black vote for Democrats. Um, they, they were really trying to get at these tensions in American culture and, um, and, and selectively choosing stories that would, that would speak to those tensions. And yes, sometimes those stories were completely falsified. Sometimes it would you know, say that there had been a, uh, there would be a story that would say that there had been a rape of you know, um, a, a woman by a Muslim immigrant and, and it would show photos and these photos would not actually have anything to do with the event being described in the story. Um, so there are all these different categories and I think it's a mistake to try to uh, conflate them. I agree. The, it sounds to me like disinformation itself could be weaponizable more than the rest of them. Like it could be literally amplified into spaces that could hurt rather than the other ones that are more aimed to confuse or dis, dis, like change the aim of people's thoughts. I think, it, I think it totally depends. I mean, you yes, I mean, disinformation can totally be used as a weapon, and this is not unique to the age of social media. This is something that you know, disinformation agents have been doing for, for much longer than I've been alive. Um, but I don't think misinformation is any less harmful, and I think that there's definitely uh, a culture of um, whether it's politicians or hyperpartisan news outlets that are intending to sort of sow wrong ideas that get um, that you know kind of populate through the culture, and the people who are spreading them might might not be um, intending to spread disinformation, but the fact that they've been, I guess, polluted with this information and they are spreading it to their networks, um, that's just as harmful. That's true. There's that, that phrase about uh, censorship via noise. It just overwhelms the senses and people can't really make really good consuming decisions about information if they're overwhelmed by everything that comes at them. So it could be a signal to noise ratio. Who are the most vulnerable? Like who, who's the most vulnerable to disinformation? Is it everybody or is it a certain group? Right, so uh, this is just based on research that I've that I've seen, and you know, I'm sure different studies would come up with different answers. But it, it looks like there's a, and this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that older populations are more vulnerable to it, and that I guess makes sense. Younger populations grew up kind of understanding that everything you read on a Yahoo message board isn't fact. Um, and those of us who have trained our parents in how to use the internet might <laughs> have some familiarity with the fact that you have to kind of give them that, you have to give them some digital lit literacy training. Um, and so, you know, folks who are not digital natives, who didn't grow up in, in this world, um, yeah, they might see a website that was created yesterday and it has no bylines on any of the stories and um, and not really understand the difference between that and uh, a, a local news site that has been around for decades, um, which is how you saw a lot of these disinformation agents exploiting this, um, this void in local news, all these local news, all these local newspapers across the country that have shut down. You saw um, folks coming in and creating God, I can't remember some of these, the names of these um, papers, but it would be the Denver Star, the Denver Arrow, whatever it is, and just, you know, somebody living in Denver is like, oh my God, my local paper 
is writing about this and maybe, um, or, or somebody not living in Denver who, is, who has no idea what the local paper is in Denver um, sees the story and thinks it's real. So I think, yeah, it, I guess it stands to reason that older, older populations would be a little more vulnerable. I, I think I agree. When I read about research on this, it, people seem to trust local news far more than they trust larger news spectrums. And so that does cause like a really, it's damaging to a community if something comes up that seems real, but it actually is very falsified inside of their own communities because they assume trust of it and then it works away from it. I want to pivot a little bit to uh, technologies because I think part of this is like the platforms in which these informations are distributed on. One of the things that comes to mind is that a Twitter account from four years ago, 10Gov, Tennessee Gov, mm -hmm. where it was a Twitter account like Tennessee's government that was completely falsified information. It was taken as genuinely real. And what was Twitter's responsibility to operate knowing full well that that, that account was weaponized specifically to disinform people? Well, the, the problem is Twitter didn't know that at the time. That's, and that's most right. of these platforms didn't know this at the time. And I think what you realize when you look back at the history of these companies that we are asking such a radically different thing of them today than we were even five years ago, pre-2016. When I started writing for Wired, I remember there was an, uh, an issue on Twitter where there were, um, gross, I'm sorry, there were decapitation photos and videos just being spread like wild on Twitter. Um, and the debate that, that I remember people having at the time then was that, well, Twitter is, you know, the, the free speech um, platform. They were calling themselves the, the free speech wing of the free speech party. They're not going to censor anything, no matter how grotesque. They're not going to touch it. Um, Facebook had similar rules. You know, in, in their early days, <clears throat> they their content moderation was held together with you know, shoestring and bubble gum. And it was just like, does this feel right? Does it feel like it should be on our platform? Almost everything got to stay up, unless it was nudity or I think like references to Hitler or something like that. But, uh, but you know, at the time, the pressure on these companies was do not remove anything, let free speech reign. And so they, um, they really, I mean, that's part of the reason why they started these companies and they really clung to those ideals. And so, yeah, when, when something like, when these disinformation campaigns started, when 10 GOP, I think it was called, um, when 10 GOP sprung up and all these other uh, all these other fake accounts, they were not being particularly vigilant about this. And as I was saying to you before, before we started, you know, none of us should. This took everybody by surprise, but it really shouldn't have because we all know that fake accounts had been a problem for so long. There was an entire MTV TV show called Catfish, and it's all based on people tricking each other into dating them um, with fake, you know, with these um, sock puppet accounts. And so the fact that somebody would use a sock puppet account for something other than dating or bullying, you know, I was, as a tech reporter, I was always hearing these stories about, you know, young girls in high school, somebody would make a fake account with their, her picture and all of a sudden they'd be, you know, trashed and humiliated throughout their school. Well, the fact that, you know, nation states and, and other bad actors started to assume these same tactics shouldn't have come as any surprise, but the, the companies were just not on guard about it. So what is it like being a journalist doing this? And if you could tell me about protocol. 
Sure. So, yeah, so I should tell you guys about protocol. So I worked at Wired <coughs> for a number of years covering this stuff, and I just recently joined this new company called Protocol, which is a new tech news site, and it's um, we launched last week. Um, and it was put out by the publisher of Politico. Um, we're a totally separate brand, but same publisher. And uh, our goal is to really cover tech um, in terms of the, we're saying the people, power, and politics of tech. So if you come to Protocol, you're not going to see, um, you know, reviews of new consumer technology. You're not going to see a lot of news about a new product launch, but you are going to see stories about the tension in, in within these companies in Silicon Valley. You're going to see stories about the tension between the companies, how they're fighting for power, the tension between these companies and the government that's trying to regulate them, and that's a lot of what I cover, um, the, the interplay between Silicon Valley and Washington, Silicon Valley and state legislatures that are increasingly taking up these um, uh, sorts of tech regulations, whether it's privacy regulation or what have you. Um, we're going to, because you're probably familiar with Politico, we have, I think, a little bit of a different um, pace than Politico has. Pace, uh, Politico is very has a really high metabolism and fast pace. Um, we're going to be, I think, you know, putting up probably fewer stories a day, just to, to put it that way. We're also a much smaller team at this point. Um, but like Politico, I think we're really geared toward uh, reporting about and for the the insider in tech. So whereas Politico is the publication that everyone on Capitol Hill reads, we want to be the publication that all the all the folks working in tech or regulating tech or in academia thinking about tech, we want to we want to be a resource for them. To me, it's a like almost like a breath of fresh air. When we do like research on tech, oftentimes we we have this media literacy concept or digital media literacy concept. When we read tech news, it almost seems like it's in complicity with the sales of the product. We don't really ever, like Wired is almost like a booster sometimes. It almost feels as if the product is being- Don't diss my Wired I don't people. Mean, I don't mean to diss it. I mean- No, more. no. I, I totally disagree. I think that there's tons of really good tech journalism out there, and I think there's tons of really good tech journalism coming out of Wired holding these companies accountable. But you know what, what I, I mean, will say like is- How some of it feels like it's part of this, the, the industry in which tech is to be made aware of. I think it totally was that. I think when I started as a tech journalist, it absolutely was that. It was re rewriting press releases. It was, yes, boosterism, totally. And I think that's what you're probably referring to as sort of the, the legacy wired. I think in recent years, a lot of um, legacy tech publications and even non-tech publications, the New York Times, Washington Post, are doing excellent tech journalism and really helping the average reader understand how um, how tech impacts their life, what their phone is doing, what information is being shared about them, and how they're being tracked, and that's a huge public service. But I think what we're trying to do a protocol is uh, create a tech publication that's speaking to people who aren't going to be surprised that their phone is sharing this information. We're going to be speaking to the people who know that that's happening, who maybe have the power to do something about it, um, and can kind of get us to that next level of understanding. So a little bit less of the knee-jerk, oh my god, this is what tech is doing to your, this is how it's invading your life, and a little bit more of, and here's what's happening next, here's who's trying to fix it, here's um, what's even less obvious and, and almost nobody knows. So I think that that's what we're going for. I think that's good. That's like an advanced level because I think people do think of tech as hardware, like they think of it as software, and I think that they're rarely aware of like the many pieces 
available in a tech industry. Like it's not just Mark Zuckerberg, it's all of these other people. And like you mentioned to me earlier, that one of the, the surprising moments of Mark Zuckerberg testifying in Congress was that he seemed to be a little unaware of some things because his staff does a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So there's that's more of the tech industry that I think people aren't really even aware of, of how much information is spread. There's many people like Jack Dorsey says he keeps the whole company in his head, but it's got to be spread out amongst so many people. So how is it to, when, when as a reporter, how are you, when you uh, do research or when you report on that, how, are you holding them accountable to this information? Or what type of, who's, who's to be reading that type of information from this? Not Jack Dorsey, but other people that work with Jack Dorsey. You mean, how do, who am I trying to hold accountable? Yeah. Or, um, well, yeah, I mean, it's whoever owns the screw-up. So, you know, if it's the, if it's the security team, if it's a security breach, then that's, that's whose, whose fault it is. Um, but ultimately, I think at a lot of these companies, yes, you're right. There are many, many layers below Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but ultimately, what you find with these founder CEOs is the power that they have over their companies is still very um, real. And so I think at Facebook in particular, sort of the whole ethos flows down from Mark. So at a certain point, it's right to to hold him accountable. You know, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, Mark kept saying, oh, I'm going to send somebody to Congress who knows more about the details than I do. Um, they're the right people to talk about this. And um, he was right. I mean, it was good that he sent other folks, uh, he sent his lawyer to, <laughs> to, to answer some of these questions. But at a certain point, there was Mark Zuckerberg was the only person who could answer the question. And the fundamental question was, Facebook was built for this very purpose. Facebook was built for the purpose of amplifying the most outrageous, the most, um, you know, the, the stuff that's going to incite your, your emotions um, and appeal to that sensibility. Um, and how do you fix a, a platform for which that is the, the whole modus operandi? And he is the guy who started it. He's the guy who led it. And at a certain point, he's the only one who could really answer those fundamental questions. So yeah, you have to balance between, you know, who really made the call on this particular screw up and also who who was that person trying to please when they made that call right mckay coppins in the atlantic calls the system that is running right now the disinformation architecture and he feels like no matter how much media literacy or skepticism he has to inoculate himself against this sometimes the system itself is so big and so many parts from the apps that the product releases to the algorithms that are in it how does someone really even understand all of these intricate details of a major product like Facebook? When we don't think of it as a product, we think of it more as like a, a space or a website. Like how, does, how do you change somebody's mind? How do you give them the extra step to read the site better? Well, I mean, that's the problem with a lot of these companies. They, they do hold all the power. So Facebook has the power over its newsfeed algorithm, and that dictates what you're going to see. So even if you want to see your, what your best friend's baby is doing every day, too bad if Facebook doesn't think that's what you want to see. And too bad if Facebook doesn't think that's what's best for its business today. Um, so Facebook's gone through a lot of different fluctuations where it decides, OK, we're going to you know, prioritize news in the newsfeed. Oh, actually, that was a big mistake, because now people are all stuck in their filter bubbles, and everybody's only listening to the people they agree with. And we have to really prioritize meaningful, meaningful social interactions. That was their big kick 
a couple of years ago. So, you know, I'm only going to show you all the stuff from your great aunt and, you know, your best friend's baby. Oh, shit. What did that do to all of the media companies that depended on us for distribution? Well, it totally cratered them. And now how do we apologize to them? Hmm, maybe we can start prioritizing just trustworthy news organizations. But how do you measure trust? You survey your community on Facebook. Well, you've raised people up in these filter bubbles, so how do you know that you can trust what they trust anymore? So it's really complicated. And um, yeah, I think it was the fact that he called it a disinformation architecture makes sense because it has just built up every decision these companies have made over the years have built up into this, um, into this structure that is kind of hard for one person to penetrate. There's no real analog for it, like I was saying to you before. One of the, I try to make like a, a space for that. It would be like if we had a building, like I, was use, I use a restaurant as an example. If you went to a restaurant and there's a capacity, there's a scale limit, but Facebook has no scale limit. So if you were in a restaurant and one table was the only table you got to hear talk at all times, it's because something inside that architecture decided there was, theirs was the meaningful output. That opacity of like how did that get chosen oftentimes makes people think that must have a reason for it or if there's some sort of idea that caused that to be the, the thing we're supposed to listen to. But we don't actually know what makes those things happen. So when you're reporting on this work, when you, when you come across the literal opacity of technology, how do you translate that for the reader, try to make that something that is accessible? I guess you try to find out as many inputs as you can, but that's sort of the problem with reporting on AI is a lot of it isn't explainable. There's this whole, whole movement to make explainable AI, but often the systems are built in such a way that the people who design them don't know why it's making the decisions that it's making. Um, other times, it is really obvious, and when those details come out, it's really troubling. So my editor at Wired um, wrote a really fascinating story about Facebook um, last year, and it was basically about the 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 year. It was called like f a year of fresh hell at Facebook or something, and it was about all of these um, sort of mistakes that they had made. And so what I was just talking about when they were changing their newsfeed and they decided that they wanted to prioritize um, meaningful social interactions without losing. Uh, trustworthy news on Newsfeed, they decided, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to survey Facebook users and decide what news they think is trustworthy. And then to determine, to determine um, what constitutes as news, we're going to um, basically classify different types of news stories. And so rather than, you know, looking at the entire spectrum of news, health news, uh, science news, um, tech news, they reduce their, their list of what classified as news, and I wrote this down so I didn't get it wrong, to politics, crime, and tragedy. So you can imagine when an enormous screw up that is um, because A, those are, you know, um, super visceral topics. These are going to be, you know, it's sort of the old news adage, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and obviously, there's a place for that kind of news, but when you eliminate everything else, you can imagine the kind of, you know, garbage heap that the news feed turns into. Um, and, and it just does seem like everything is always lit on fire. And so, um, so yeah, when you can find out the details about what inputs are going into these um, automated systems, um, it's sometimes really baffling and troubling. Yeah, it, it actually reminds me 
from just what you said. It reminds me of like how memes are even made by codification. They have to be repeated enough and then they become part of the, the discourse. I mean, it's, it's a matter of like this constant understanding that if you're sensational enough, maybe it'll just go away. But if somebody agrees with it, they sort of codify its meaning, even if it's not real. And this new creativity comes from it. What you just said reminds me of like how Facebook groups are operating. I think Brandy Zadrovny at uh, NBC News talked about this unfortunate story where this young boy, this four years old, died of the flu because she didn't give him Tamiflu because her friends inside the group told her not to. So it was an anti-vax group, but there's no, there no control over that group. That, and her message, that specific message, happened to be amplified because of the responses. And it works the way that old message boards would work, like 4chan where they, the more people responded to it, the more it stayed at the top. And if Facebook is doing that, then they're not really aware of how these people-to-people -people flows turn into algorithmic data, even if it's wrong. So in other words, if you created something that's sensational but real enough, it becomes real almost instantaneously. So there's no way to like really create, that's, that's exploitable. You know, that's a system that's like, once you figure that out, then does the algorithm change? Like you just mentioned, like Zuckerberg changed the flow over and over. I remember the pivot to video and then everybody pivoted away from video, and it was all based on stats and data that were exaggerated. So how's to know what's the next step? What are we gonna, this is to, to move forward to the next step, like what is, what are we looking at for the next few months? Like this is the year. Yeah, so the one thing I'll say is <laughs> there has been a ton of progress since 2016. So, you know, as I was saying in 2016, Nobody was paying attention to this being an issue. In fact, they didn't want it to be an issue. They, particularly Facebook had gotten in some trouble for um, appearing to prioritize um, or to appearing to, to suppress conservative news in what was called its trending topics um, portal, which was basically just surfacing the news of the day. And there had been some reports that they were not allowing conservative um, news outlets through. So Facebook wanted nothing to do with um, putting a finger on the scale. It had already gotten in trouble for that. So they really didn't want to acknowledge this problem. Um, we've come a very long way since then. Obviously, it's not a problem that's fixed. And I don't know if it's a problem that's fix fixable. But um, there are so many more guardrails in place than there were then. So for instance, if I wanted to know every ad that the Trump administration or the, the Trump campaign was was posting on Facebook at that time, who they were targeting, what they were spending, I would have had no idea. I would have had to, you know, go to the campaign and ask them to throw me some scraps, examples of the ads. Well now there's this huge uh, portal on Facebook where I can see all of it. Now, what you were talking about before was, you know, sort of the the overkill on the information side. Um, those systems are still pretty impenetrable because, you know, if you want to look through all the hundreds of ads that the campaign posted today, go for it. But I don't think a lot of people are doing that. So there's still work to be done on that front. Um, there's, you know, just little things that they've done um, to make sure that people, you know, to, to put some kind of friction in place so that people can't just pretend they're a political ad. So, you know, you have to register as if you're a political or issue advertiser. Um, you have to literally receive a postcard to your physical address to make sure you live in the United States. But, um, you know, I think they thought that that was going to solve last election's problem. What we know now is that this isn't just something that other countries are doing. This is something that we're doing to each other. This is something that our own political parties and our own neighbors and friends are, are doing. And that's a much trickier um, issue for these companies to grapple with because, you know, they 
forget that they're independent of the, the First Amendment. That's a, that is a value that we hold as a country, that you know we should be able to voice our opinions on politics. Um, so they're drawing these very, um, they're drawing these, these fine lines, basically saying that if you're misrepresenting yourself and if you're coordinating as a, as a collective, that's out. But as long as you are who you say you are, um, anything goes. Right, and that gives the idea that the authentic behavior, like yeah. there's supposed to be some sort of reality construct behind it in order to present that as real. The, the, the difference there then is you could, the only thing that changes, I, I think that's all good news, like the fact that you could actually hear structures are being put in place. However, like the micro-targeting aspect is very interesting to me. Like you could literally find out something so specific about somebody and you could send an ad out to just a small group of people. And that, the activation of like five people is worth more than just virally sharing something with hundreds because hundreds won't get out of their seat and actually make any civic action. So, and in the case of 2016, a lot of the work was civic unaction. It was trying to suppress votes. It was trying to cause people to not get out of their seats. And in this case, it's like trying in, almost in a similar way, but very small bits of information. And there's a report saying like there's tens of thousands of ads per day that are the same ad, but micro-targeted just slightly different to different yeah. people. That's kind of wild, like as far as how do you, how does that even get accountability in any way? Like how does, I, I like the idea of, the, to, to pivot onto like the uh, protocol stuff, I think we have to slow down a little bit. I think that's important too, like journalism sometimes, uh, not, not, not this is a blanket statement so it's applied to you, but it's sometimes it's important to be first rather than right and so that type of thing becomes so sensational and just recently in these uh the caucuses and a lot of the the polling information came out that was incorrect but it was amplified too quickly how does that get pulled back do we have enough media literacy or information to like give us that skepticism or do we buy into information are we just too weak to think of it yeah no i think that newsrooms definitely have to own up to their own role in spreading this stuff in the last election, um, you know, not only the the hacked, you know, WikiLeaks um, information, but uh, you know, basically the the Russian Internet Research Agency's first um, push on Facebook was to set up this website called DC Leaks and and fill it with all of, all this um, salacious stuff, and then try to push that to journalists and. Um, and yeah, I think you, um, Josh mentioned in the in the opening that you know there were stories quoting people who were not real people just because they had tweeted something. And so I think that a lot of newsrooms do have to check themselves and how they were reporting last time around and and do things different this time. Um, for instance, I personally have become really skeptical of stories that have the framing of such such and such thing was. Um, being spread on social media or was trending on Twitter. And for me, that's not enough anymore. That doesn't feel like enough proof that I know that there's really a critical mass of people who are real people who are talking about or caring about this. And I think that um, people need to be really cautious about that. And I, I think you can go too far in that direction and just assume everything is a a bot or a sock puppet account, and I think that that's, that's wrong too. Yeah, I think that's but, cynical, yeah. Yeah, but I think you need to be very skeptical of just writing about something because it's trending or because you're seeing it a lot on social media because we know that there are so many ways that this stuff can be amplified inauthentically. Um, you did touch on the micro-targeting, and I wanted to mention we haven't really talked about Google, but 
one of the changes they made recently was basically preventing political advertising from from being micro targeted based on these um, based on either you know select lists of I want to actually hit you 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 and you or based on demographic data. So um, campaigns are still going to find ways to reach the people they want to reach based on zip code and other things like that um, that indicate a little bit about your demographics, but it does make it harder. Interesting, it all, interestingly, it also advantages campaigns that have more money because it makes these ads less efficient. It means that I'm sending out an ad to all the people in this zip code and I know maybe five of them, maybe are on board with my message um, before I knew that all, I knew that I had all five of you because you had signed, filled out a survey or you'd come to a rally or something like that and I put your email address in there and um, so now it does have the sort of perverse um, effect of of benefiting the people who benefited most the last time around. Right, and that's it's a, that to me gives I don't want to be cynical about it, but it just seems like there's just new tricks that will just be employed just to go around the systems because when the system puts something in place, there's always a trick to make sure that this works. And in this case, it's a, the stakes are quite high. You know, So how we understand what's going on, I think just the way like algorithms work, we don't understand exploits until they've happened. It's oftentimes like you could kind of see like you, like you explained with the catfishing. We knew it existed, but the exploit occurs only after somebody has done it. So oftentimes they're very reactive in the tech systems to like try to, to fix that. Is there any way, is it, and this is a question that um, it's probably not answerable, but is it, is it I, I'm not a big person of believing that government should regulate in any way, but do you think that literacies need to be Im embedded into government representatives, people who know a little bit more about how these things work? Is this a government thing at all? Is this a citizen thing? Like, where are we safe? People like to learn a lot about this, but they hate to learn that they're being exploited. So they, they get very sensitive when the, these platforms could be turning against them. What's what do we do? What's our next steps? So I think you had a few questions in there. One is there does there need to be more literacy in government? And absolutely yes. I mean, um, and that's on every issue in tech. That's on on privacy. That's on um, that's on you know topics like Section Two Thirty, which is this basic uh, this law that's been on the books for decades that basically says that. You can't sue Facebook if I write something on Facebook that uh, defames you. Um, it basically holds these, it allows these companies to claim immunity for things that other people do on their platforms and it also protects them if they take that comment down or if they don't, if they make a mistake with moderation. Um, there's a huge debate going on about that, um, which ties into this whole conversation we're having because, you know, this information is something that the, the companies are basically free to write their own rules, and um, people in government are not too happy about that. But um, they don't—they have to really think through the ramifications of amending that law, um, and what could go wrong if they did it, and who else it would impact beyond just Facebook and Google, who, Facebook and YouTube, who they're mad at. Um, it would impact every newspaper that has a comment section. Um, anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. But yes, there needs to be a lot more literacy about technology in, uh, in government. And um, that's, I don't know where that's going to come from. There are various proposals to set up you know, different agencies, bureaus within the FTC to train people about this stuff. But um, none of it's really being picked up. What, what was another part of no, that it, I think you covered it. It okay. was, I think one of my biggest problems I have as an educator is somebody is knowing that like 
media literacy isn't part of the curriculum. It's, it's an option. And I think those are the things that, to me, young people have a good bullshit detector. They kind of do get a sense when, when things aren't like right. They kind of get a distant sense, like, that can't be real. But I think when there's a charismatic swell around something, it's like hard to get in and out of those systems. And I think that occurs from every age group. And so it's, I think the, the real literacies that should be engaged into the future are a lot more like what you've been talking about, which is learning about just the, the architecture, the disinformation architectures, and what could actually, what happens from a CEO down to the algorithm writers, to the programmers, to the apps that are used. And I think that's, a, covering that, is got, it's gotta be immense. Like if that's a, these things are, these are big. These are huge companies. There's now what, four you, your report this morning, there's now $4 trillion companies that are out there, the MAAF, right? right? Yeah, those are big, those are behemoths, bigger than, and that's bigger than Exxon. Yeah, you know? we stay busy. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> you do. And so we, we have to take some sort of civic action. I think first and foremost, as well as media literacy, is understand that we can do things. We have agency within our United States, and that sometimes is tough. It means doing things. It actually means reading the news and like understanding it. But I think that's more important because the, it's one of those, like in the long run, you'll feel better about consuming the things that make you felt better, that you felt more informed than you did if you just felt into the slipstream of like the partisanship. It's kind of like candy versus like a real good meal. And so those, that's, um, that's something that I think is just a, a longer term thing that we'll have to think about. But this is an ongoing conversation and this is our very first of this series. So I thank you all for being here and thank you, Issy, for being our first guest. Thank you. So really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void Salon series. Make sure to follow Izzy Lepowski on Twitter at Izzy Lepowski and read her work on protocol.com. You can follow Dr. Jamie Cohen on Twitter at New and Digital. You can join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Digital Void. Let us know what you think. For more information on the Digital Void Salon series and to reserve free tickets to our next salon, the Streaming Wars, where we discuss the digital video streaming wars between Amazon, Netflix, Disney+, Apple, and more, with BuzzFeed News' Ryan Broderick and The Verge's Julia Alexander on March 18th at 6.30 p.m. at Civic Hall. And to subscribe to our newsletter, visit digitalvoid.media. Digital Void Salon Series is a production of Digital Void Media.